Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, all. It's Catherine Murphy. You're on Australian Politics Live. I'm joined this week by my camper pack. Hello. Hi, Murph. They're smiling at me. They may even laugh. In the studio this week, my partner in crime, Sarah Martin, who is Guardian Australia's chief political correspondent, and also Paul Carp, or as he's known in the office, Paul Carp QC, <laughs> who is joining us. Now, we're going to do two things in this pod, one reasonably conventional, one slightly unusual. We're going to have a chat. First up, because it is 12 months since Scott Morrison assumed or ascended into the prime ministership, whichever word you want to use. Bradbury style. Something like that. Um, And we just want to take stock of where things are at just in this moment in time. And then we're going to throw two questions from the audience. Our dear readers. Our dear readers who have uh, given us actually a list of doozies, which we are (laughs) all kind of clapping our hands with joy and looking forward to getting into. But let's just start with the old, ye olde ascension of Prime Minister Morrison, 12 months on. Now, I don't know about you guys, but, and well, actually, that's a lie. I do know about you guys because we're just basically retailing a conversation that we have quite often Mm. in the office, just with the listeners. The most notable thing, well, I shouldn't say most notable, but one of the more notable things I think about where we're at at the moment is how comparatively quiet things are. And by that, I don't mean boring. I just mean that I'm very conscious myself. I feel like for the first time in, I don't know how long, probably a decade, I do not feel dragged behind this kind of crazy, out of control political process, news cycle, everything else, I feel sort of almost like it's the olden days Mm -hmm. where one can think about things, have a bit of a delve journalistically and all of that sort of stuff. So Morrison, you know, several prime ministers have tried to execute this, let's all keep calm and slow things down a bit. But so far, and that's all I'll say, he's succeeded. What, What do we think about this? Well, it's funny because it is the thing that leaders have been saying sort of over the past decade, let's not talk about ourselves. We need to talk about the Australian people. Julie Gillard tried it. You know, Tony Abbott tried it. Mm -hmm. Malcolm Turnbull tried it, Mm -hmm. all without success. So I think initially when Scott Morrison said, you know, we don't want to be, we want to dial down the volume 
focus on the Australian people, stop talking about ourselves. I think a lot of people in this place kind of, you know, smiled wryly and thought, oh, well, good luck with that, mate. So far, he's succeeding. I I think the reason it usually doesn't work is that the opposition comes to fill the void when the government Mm -hmm. says it wants politics off Mm -hmm. the front page. That's a good observation. But, But the reason it has worked so far this time is that because of the unexpected election result, Labor finds it much more difficult to fill that void. They haven't yet worked out which bits lost them the election, which bits they're Mm. going to keep. And as a result, you have both of them quiet at the same time for Mm. once. Mm. Yeah, well, that's that's a good observation. Do we think too, though, I, I just have this suspicion myself that we are partly involved in this as well, that there might be some sort of, well, it's desire to put it at too high an order, but we're all exhausted, fatigued, discombobulated too, Mm. as well as, and by we, I should make it clear that I'm talking about political journalists. It's sort of, it's not like we've all gone out to lunch, quite the contrary. In fact, I think there's some very interesting stories being prosecuted Mm. at the moment precisely for the reason that we've all got five minutes to think. But do you think we're part of it as well as them? I think it's a sad reality that a lot of people in our profession in this place have thrived on a diet of conflict and tension for quite some time. And, and I've, I've been in Canberra five years and I think in that time it has been very much that type of reporting. It's very reactive. It's very conflict driven. It's very much focused on the politics of politics, less so on what politics means for people in the outside world. Mm. I think most journalists prefer that type of reporting. I think most journalists do want to do good public interest reporting, but you kind of get swept up into the madness of federal politics. So I think, yes, I think there is a desire for journalists to take the time to scrutinise, to see what's actually going on rather than been focused on the sort of internecine warfare mm. of both political parties. Mm. What do you and think, I think because I, obviously there's also much less mm. horse race mm. reporting because I mean with the unexpected election result the polling even weeks out from the election wasn't replicated on the day. And so there's much less of a sense of the importance of, of trying to give their relative to position. And, and when Anthony Albanese says, oh, well, you know, the next election isn't for three years' time and that's the one we actually have to win, not the 20 news polls in a row or whatever, mm-hmm. I think that's reflected in, in the reporting is much less who won the day, who won the 6pm news, mm. because it, it's just not that relevant. Mm. Yeah, well, that's right. Now, and and how... How do we think, you know, sort of lifted up about out of this observation that things are a bit more quiet, how do we think both sides are coping? Because it's certainly the only election I have ever covered where the result was not what either side expected. That is, that's a first for me, although I was on a panel actually at the Canberra Writers Festival this weekend with Michelle Grattan, who reminded everybody who came along to that session that it was very much like the Hewson Mm. uh, Keating election, which is obviously before my time. Mm. So in which she said it was very similar dynamic. Everybody thought, oh, Hewson would win and then, and Keating hit back and and won. So similar, she she described a similar feeling in both Mm. instances, right? Well, that's funny because the week before the election, I remember chatting to Michelle in the corridor and I said, what do you think, Grats? (laughs) And she said, well, I expect Labor will win, but I was surprised in 93. So this could be like 93, just never know. So, you know, absolutely, that's a a, a good observation. Yeah. So So anyway, what do we think? 
what do we think of how they, they, the protagonists, not us for a minute, the protagonists, you know, Scott Morrison and the Coalition and Anthony Albanese and Labor are managing being in a different world to the one they thought they'd be in? I think the Coalition's managing much better than the Labor Party. (laughs) Paul? I think they're surprised about needing to come up with a three-year agenda, but that's a good problem to have. So, yeah, I think they're handling it pretty well. And the, the few breakouts are from backbenchers that mm-hmm. are like, now now we're in power, let's let's really do something, let's let's turn it up, you know, let's freeze superannuation or something. Oh, so- well, what do we think about that as a general dynamic? Because it's sort of, I think it's fair to observe that the government, you know, setting aside Sarah's point about Labor, we'll return to that in a sec, but the top-heavy, bottom-heavy phenomenon in this government at the moment is this top-heavy. Obviously, Scott Morrison, you know, uh, all-conquering all hero, plus front bench, then a bunch of backbenchers or junior ministerial types who think that government needs to be about something other than winning an election you didn't expect to win. Henceforth, here are my bountiful ideas on a Mm. range of subjects. How do we think that's going to play out? Well, it's interesting because Scott Morrison has obviously decided that it's not particularly helpful to have backbenchers out there freelancing on policy ideas and has has discouraged them from doing so on Sky, for example. And there was a the audit soon after the election where there was something like twenty five MPs making an appearance on Sky within a, a you know a week, and they were like, "Well, what are you doing? Why why are you talking about things that aren't decided yet? And you're going to have far more success if you want to pursue particular policy initiatives." by going through the party's processes. Now, that's all well and good, but it is the Liberal Party. They do like the, like mm. the sound of their own voices and they like to ventilate ideas. And for some, obviously, that it's not going to work and they will continue to, to freelance and, and put stakes in the ground on certain issues. So there is a little bit of disgruntlement from, from some. They don't think it's fair that there is this edict on, on backbenches. So I think it will continue, but probably not to the extent that it did before when it was often used as a proxy for, you know, for leadership intentions. Yeah. Yes, exactly, Paul. I think the, the the people at the top of the government have, you know, survived the near-death experience and they're very grateful f- for that and they don't want to now descend into infighting and division. But the, the backbench are people who, you know, filled vacancies of people who thought they were rats leaving a sinking ship or were elected un- unexpectedly in this, in the, this, you know, high tide for them. And so they're, they're a bit more bullish about it because they didn't have that near-death experience and, and, and so they're floating ideas as a result. Mm, do we think, well, we, we don't, well, we, we sort of all need to be out of the predictions business given what happened in the election campaign, but sort of our consensus here is that it'll probably keep going in some shape or form. Now, you know, whether this matters or not at the end of the day, I guess we'll find out. Yeah, well, I, I think it, if the government needs to have an agenda, so then they've got something to talk about. Otherwise, inevitably, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. Mm. People will talk about other issues of their choosing. So I think probably they can address what they see as a problem by coming up with an agenda of their mm. own. Yes, actually something to do. And mm. Labor, what do we think? Sarah, you said the government's doing better than Labor. Well, obviously they're very bruised and battered and it's there's an extended period of wound licking going on. And I think as, as we've both heard from MPs, the, the Weatherall Review is acting something of a extended therapy session mm. for a lot of people mm. who were obviously hopeful of a different result. That review process is actually 
quite short. It's due to be sort of wrapped up in October, I think is right. So that will be part of the recalibration that they're going through, but obviously they're still feeling pretty shell-shocked. Yes, Paul, thoughts? They're they're in a process of working out what their core values are, which are the things that might have cost them the election, like franking credits or, or like the handling of coal that they might have to ditch and which are the things that they absolutely can't ditch that are their core business. And other than a few more leaks than there were under Shorten, Albanese suffered a few more leaks than Shorten did. There hasn't been major outbreaks of, of fighting yet, but the despondency at the result is the, is the main mood. Mm. We'll, we'll move on now because we want to get through this list of questions. Now, apologies in advance to anybody whose question didn't get up in this list because there there were a number and we won't be able to get through all of them. I won't name people because people have Twitter handles that may not be G-rated. So we'll... questions are we I don't know. Well, that's right. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> just hold on to your hats, people. No, it'll be fine. Let's start with uh, one that was slightly left field for me, but I did actually laugh out loud. We just call this one Peter Dutton colon why, but the the question was expressed this way. Why is Peter Dutton, this is sort of in the 12 months on theme, still in the position he is in? Is he like the headsman of a village? Interesting thought. And then it's a sort of summation. It's a dirty job, but our base wants us to do it, which I take to mean, forgive me if I've interpreted this question incorrectly, dear reader, um, that someone's got to be the bomb thrower. Somebody's got to come out and hate everyone or have the sharp rhetoric or be hyper-partisan and dutz as your bloke. So, Peter Dutton, why, Sarah? What? Oh, well, this reader clearly missed the series of Peter Dutton smiling articles that <laughs> appeared uh, over the past 12 months. Uh, look, Peter Dutton, why? Well, look, we've got to remember... Queensland in this equation. And we have to remember that while a lot of people were talking about Peter Dutton potentially losing his seat, he most certainly did not and increased his margin. So Peter Dutton is popular among certain parts of the population, deeply unpopular among certain parts of the population, but is seen differently by, as the dear reader suggests, the base. So look, I think Scott Morrison wanted to avoid it. I mean, Scott Morrison's happy for him to be in that position. I don't think there'd be any advantage for the Morrison government in him being removed from that position and would just agitate the Conservatives. And we all know what a bunch of agitated Conservatives mm, can do. Not mm. so good. Paul, what do you think? Obviously, he's, he's the critical player in the in the right because Morrison also kind of dances sometimes with the right, but sometimes not. Dutz is 100%, you know, the right, the, the kind of most powerful player in the right because Cormann's a bit diminished these days. So Yeah, so it's a balance between the Liberal and Conservative tradition in the Liberal Party and Scott Morrison became Prime Minister off the votes of his small centre-right faction and all the moderates from Turnbull swinging in behind him. Yep. But even then it was like a close 45-40 against Dutton. So the conservative faction, the hard-right faction is very large and we've just seen what happens when a prime minister like Turnbull, you know, accommodates for a while mm. but eventually is dispensed with by 
the conservative faction. Oh, so no, he well, can't afford war with them. Well, yeah, but and he, he's a pragmatist, like, you know, and we did a pod on Morrison before the election. And one of the things he did when he was state director of New South Wales is he appointed two deputy directors, one from the right and one from the left, because he realised that that was going to be the most conducive way to having a, a happy branch. So he's he's the ultimate pragmatist and there's just no way he would pick that fight. I mean, mm. he's, he's a creature of the New South Wales party, which is highly factionalised yeah. and you know, the war, war continues to this day in New South Wales. So it's not that stupid. No, no, absolutely. But I suppose the open question, which we won't answer in this podcast, is when people put themselves forward in politics as leadership contenders, particularly people who don't necessarily think that that's their end point, although Peter Dutton may have been born thinking that being Prime Minister is his end point. But when they cross that threshold, it is hard for them mentally to step back off it. Mm. That, that's that been my observed experience of the of the cohort that we watch. So there's nothing to point to to suggest that Peter Dutton's around still with his knapsack, you know, in his leadership, what is it, baton in his knapsack or whatever that yeah. ridiculous phrase was. I mean, you know, let's not get overexcited. But it's just I'll be interested to see how he sort of how he settles into this mm. term because it's you're absolutely right, I reckon, what, about Morrison and how Morrison will want to play it, but there's two people in this tango, so the mm. question is whether or not Dutz wants to mm. play the same sort of football. Anyway, we'll see. So moving on. Now, our next question is how can we ensure full transparent democracy in Australia and did we ever have one? Now, this is a sort of obviously sounds a dreadfully melancholic question, but it's it's sort of the premise of it is no one seems to be accountable for their decisions anymore. You know, we've had this long drawn out debate over ICAC. Can we trust the old mechanisms for accountability anymore? It, it very much exemplifies this disillusionment, I guess, voter disillusionment. So it's a serious question. How do we answer it? It's a very good question. I think there's a, a lot of practical things that can be done, but I fear won't be done that could improve the transparency and accountability of our democracy, things such as FOI laws, which are, you know, a complete misnomer in, in this country. The FOI process is probably corrupt. It is very difficult to get information from government departments. And we know that there's often negotiation between departments and ministerial officers about what is released and what is redacted. That would be a really good start if that was actually a, a properly independent, accountable process that w- was e- easier to access by journalists. But the list is long. Mm. Mm. Exactly. What do and, you think, Paul? Well, I think a National Integrity Commission, we've got a kind of weak model that the coalition's put forward, so not likely to see uh, any improvements there. One bright spot, though, is I think there's a lot of concern about the truth or misrepresentation of political advertising, first with the Medisk campaign in 2016 from Labor and in the most recent election with the Chinese language signs in Kuyong and Chisholm. And of course, the Electoral Matters Committee looks at the last election. And I think that both parties do have an incentive now to try and draw a line somewhere because otherwise it's just going to, we're just going to be circling the drain and and setting a lower and lower bar on those things. It will be interesting, I agree, to see how both parties approach that 
committee process that you've just flagged, as in just for folks listening on who don't know this, every after every election, the Joint Standing Committee on Electoral Matters does a review of the election just gone and considers potential reforms to the electoral system as a consequence of what they've learned during the campaign. Now, Paul's optimism, which I applaud, is that maybe the major parties will have reached a point in terms of truth and truthiness that both see a benefit in trying to legislate for more truth, for more accountability, because otherwise it's one hell of an arms race we're entering about, you know, basically you can say anything in an election campaign now and apparently get away with it without sanction. It's only going to get worse with deep fake videos as well where, you know, people, it won't be chopping up things that people actually said. It will be literally stuffing Making words in up. their mouth with, no, no, with, no. with things they never said. In... Well, love, I could not agree more, but I think it is, it will be all, I would just say it like that. I think it'll be interesting to see what they bring forward and whether or not there, there any sort of productive armistice can be reached. I mean, the only reason I hesitate is not because I'm an old and cynical and, dre- and dreadful person. It's just that it seems all of these integrity issues seem to me to be a no-brainer to a greater or lesser extent when you've got voters who are very um, alienated from the system mm. and yet we never quite get there. This is the thing that frustrates me with Morrison saying, oh, everything we do, we have to put the Australian people in the centre of our sights and it's all about the Australian people. Well, you know, help journalists do their jobs and make the system more accountable. You know, truth in advertising, absolutely. FOI laws, real-time financial disclosure to donations to political parties. If someone makes a financial donation this week, we're not going to know about it until 2021. Mm, so, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that if Morrison was 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 genuine about improving the system so that Australians were at the centre of all our concerns, then I think there's a bunch of things that he could put on the table that would prove that. And I'll say by way of reassurance to the listeners, we will continue to prosecute these issues vigorously in our little team and we will do our best for you, I promise. Now, okay, so another question now. Uh, the government is signalling that it won't budge on its commitment to a budget surplus, even if there is a downturn. And obviously there's a live debate at the moment, given the trade war and other things about whether or not the world is about to face a really massive economic shock that will obviously pick up Australia in its wake. Now, the questioner says, given the Australian government's response during the global financial crisis is, was viewed as world-leading, I kept us out of a recession, why is the government keeping on saying that, you know, if there's to be a shootout between stimulus and the surplus, that the surplus will win? Sarah? I think they're hoping they'll be able to pull off both. I, I think they are committed to the surplus and politically delivering that surplus is very important to them. Well, they, they've they decided that that is very important and I think they have little choice but to meet that. But I suspect that if stimulus is needed, then they will provide that stimulus because they don't want to be the government that plunges Australia into a recession because, mm. again, just on the real politics of that, let alone the the you know, the ramifications for, for, for people, that is extremely damaging and risky and everyone wants to avoid that at all costs. So if they can pull that off, <laughs> keep the surplus and then stimulate, then yes. I suspect they will, even if they just hang on to that one yes, precious by, year of yeah, surplus. exactly. Missed it or got it by mm. that much. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, Paul, any other? There, yeah, there aren't too many levers to pull. I mean, the RBA only has one or two rate cuts left before at near zero interest rates. So I think they are hoping they don't have to, but if it got really desperate, yeah, they would if they had to. Mm, and yeah. they have sort of indicated that they are looking at, that they're aware of this problem and Morris 
Morrison and Frydenberg have both sort of said, you know, we're, there is infrastructure spending in the works and we are, we are aware of this problem, you know, don't think we're not aware of it. So no one can say they weren't warned. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's anyway, it, we could do, seriously, we could do a whole pod on all the intricacies of this argument, mm. infrastructure, the, the limits of monetary policy or anyway, but we've we've just given the short answer there, which is we think that they're sort of, well, they're, they're hoping for the best and planning for the worst, mm. I think is I probably, think probably yep. the, the, the cut through on that. Now, where are we up to on my list? Okay, is there any evidence that the government actually has a policy program? Or will the next three years all be rhetoric? What do we think? Well, I've, I've spent a lot of the last week watching uh, reheated immigration and national security bills <laughs> grind their way through through <laughs> committees. So some of the policy work or some of the policy agenda is just the, the last term stuff that, that was never done coming back, you know, zombie-like back from the dead. So yeah. it's, it's not complete You're not hopeful, silent. It's you're not not com- hopeful Paul? Or, or, or you just think there's a backlog clearing and then maybe something bright will emerge on the horizon? I think I think they're, you know, like the, the ducks paddling furiously mm. under the water looking for stuff to do for the next three years. But, yeah, there, there is actually some legislation there that it, it's just that it's old legislation come back and not what we'd call a new agenda. Mm. I mean, they're going to have to come up with a new agenda and they, again, I think they are, they've started that process. We know that um, Morrison has conducted a few of, and this is, please forgive the jargon, but some of these deep dives oh on, um, on policy. Could have been, could have been worse. Could have <laughs> um, been worse. Policy areas. So they've done things on Indigenous suicide and recycling and there's another one, but I can't remember. But Doesn't look, matter. They're that doing they a, ser- a series yeah, of these yeah. um, of these uh, policy discussions. We know they've, they've put IR on the agenda and Porter is uh, Christian Porter ha- will be releasing discussion papers on various things later in the year. So they they are starting to do some work, but you know it's a it's a short term of government. Mm. They're going to have to get their skates on to come up with this policy agenda that's you know apparently going to serve the best interests of of Middle Australia without picking too many fights. So unless they're planning to continue this small target strategy in, in government, which is is not out of the question. No, not out of the um, question at all. Then mm. we're going to need to see some action. Mm. Well, we'll, anyway, we'll keep you posted on mm. action on the policy front. Now, time's totally against us. This is this is bad because there are so many questions. So I'm going to crunch together a couple here because this is, this is quite interesting. So one reader wonders how we can overcome the straight back bat approach from Morrison, which I interpret to mean... How do we get the Prime Minister to answer questions when he's very adept at not answering them? And then sort of related to that in that it's a media practice question, uh, one reader wonders whether the media's assumption that Shorten, Bill Shorten would, would win in May resulted in an unbalanced kind of scrutiny which helped contribute to Labor's loss on May 18. So let's start with the first. So... Anybody got any bright ideas about how we get Scott Morrison to answer a question he doesn't want to answer? I'd like to hear the ideas. Well, exactly. Um, he's very, yeah, he's a tough one to crack. If we could all agree that there are certain questions that they've never answered, like what are you going to do if Kyoto carryover credits don't count towards the Paris targets, if we could all agree that there are some things that are very important that he's never answered, then, you know, together we could keep asking it and, and, until... 
that at least that fact is exposed, if not the actual answer. I think that is, you know, sort of the wisdom of the wisdom of babes, and I don't mean that in a patronising way about my <laughs> colleague about the QC. That that's right. I think that's look. All of us in this studio would love to give you an answer, you know, along the lines of, well, we as a collective would crash tackle Scott Morrison to the floor and pin him down until he answered a question. I mean, obviously we would love to have that capacity, to, but, but we don't. But I think persistence is it. I don't, well, mm. I, I don't see an alternative. Do you, Sarah? Do you? No, I think persistence is the only way. And I think, you know, on those rare opportunities where we do have uh, press conferences with the with press gallery journalists, then we need to back up your mates. Yes. Yeah, it doesn't happen. Doesn't very happen. Often, sadly, I mean, well, it should happen more. I think it should when more. when the question when the line of questioning is valid, mm. and it is obvious that Morrison doesn't want to answer, and he really is the exemplar of not answering mm. questions that he doesn't want to answer, then you know, persistence and and uh, reinforcements, mm. I think, is really the only way to go. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's also in, in some, I've talk, was talking to someone about this the other day, like state politics is much more sort of, rule, you know, a bit more unruly and you have these very sort of close press conferences where you're a little huddle standing around the Premier and you're all kind of back each other in and it's very um, vigorous. Whereas yeah. in Canberra, they're kind of quite staged affairs. You know, you've got the, the, the Prime Minister up the front with the flags and mm. everyone's seated like in a little sort of theatre type arrangement. So it is a very diff- different atmosphere and I think it it is harder to get that sense of, you know, a pack. Yes. Not that I want us to be like no, a no, pack no. of animals, but no. you know, it is a different dynamic and I think it does make it harder or makes it easier for the politician to deflect. Yes, and and he is particularly good at it for reasons that I still can't quite entirely fathom. Anyway, persistence, we, we'll do our best. Now to the second part of that question, which is do we think that uh, the sort of broad scale, for want of a better term, assumption that Shorten was going to win created unbalanced scrutiny, as in more scrutiny for the Labor Party than the government during the election cycle, and that may have been detrimental to Labor's election chances. What do we think? Well, I think the first observation is that we stayed off the bus and and held them accountable in a a different way in terms of speaking to voters in marginal seats and fact-checking, you know, factual claims and claims about policy. So we did that. In terms of what we witnessed then from questioning on the bus. I, I think that might have played a part in, in harsher questioning of, of Shorten. And I think the climate change issue is, is a good example of that, where Shorten was expected to provide costings, not of what climate change would cost the government, but how much it would cost companies to, to reduce emissions, which I think he was able to explain that it depends company to company. It's not something that can even be done. Whereas, you know, the coalition throughout the campaign was peddling modelling that didn't have any any value on the benefit of mitigating climate change. Scott Morrison saying that tonne for tonne they've accounted for how they're going to reduce emissions but not addressing that question of carryover credits. Or so, the 100 million megatons that's technology improvements or the EV, you know, component that when there's no EV strategy, all of these things. Um, I also think there's a couple of things going on. I mean, the election was certainly fought on Labor's policy agenda. You know, they had a, a large policy agenda and the government had nothing. So, you know, that was a very deliberate strategy so that it was a bizarro election and that everyone was talking about Labor rather than what the government had done. So I think 
because of that and because of Labor's vast policy agenda, there was going to be ex- extra scrutiny of what they were putting forward. But I think absolutely right, that expectation did sort of shift the pressure. But then also just as a quick addendum, one thing that was quite interesting, I thought, particularly in the first couple of weeks of the campaign, is that Bill Shorten, when he, he never did press conferences in Canberra. He tried to avoid press conferences in, in Canberra. So I think in that the initial stages of the campaign, he probably did feel a bit of extra heat or it felt a bit more heated because there was some sort of pent up, you know, desire on the part of the gallery to, to, to put questions to, questions to, to Bill yeah. Shorten. Yeah. One, one other thing I would observe just very quickly, because mm. it's not obvious, we are slightly in a no-win position, we political reporters because there was an enormous amount of criticism, for example, after the 2013 election campaign that Tony Abbott won. Uh, There was enormous criticism of political journalism and with some justification about the, the failure to apply sufficient scrutiny to Abbott's election agenda. And and I think myself that a lot of that criticism was valid. So then you learn the lesson, you learn the lesson, you know, if, there's, if, the, if there is to be a change of government, then appropriate scrutiny needs to be made of the alternative government's policies. But, you know, do you get the balance exactly right? Well, this is not a science. This is, this is a social science, what we do. So anyway, I'm just, I'm just making that point because it's not obvious to people that there may have been you know, the the sort of previous superficial was well, previous lessons learned. Mm. The, the sort of superficial response is, "Oh, the media is terribly biased against Labor." Blah 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 blah. It is more complicated than that. But the the lesson you should take from that shouldn't it be that you don't just apply maximum scrutiny to the alternative government. You you apply scrutiny to whichever political actor it is that's trying to get away with saying the least about what they're going to do over the next three years. Yes, and because you know. Because Labor announced so much policy and uh, and had such a, a big platform this time, there were ans- there were answers to those questions about what they're going to do for, for for three years, and perhaps yeah, we need to think about who's trying to avoid. Yes, answering the questions very wise. Now I still have a pack of questions, sadly, but time is totally against us, so we're going to have to say good night for now. Thank you as always for joining us on the show. Production this week from Miles Martignoni and from Hannah Izzard. You guys know the drill: subscribe, share, tell your friends, etc. If you like too, if you like this Q and A format, you know, readers sending in questions and us sort of scratching our heads and doing our best to answer them, let us know because we can build that into the forward production schedule for the pod and offer you different things than just straight chats, long-form interviews and all that sort of stuff. If you found this pod useful, let us know. We are all very easy to find, either on the Guardian website, via our emails or on the many social platforms that all of us occupy. And Thanks. if you think it should be done with cake and tea, <laughs> or gin and tonic, <laughs> let us know. Anyway, it's been real. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food, Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us. Call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.